Thanks, Jez. Let's uh, bow our heads and pray together, if we may. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we engage with your word this morning, it may not be a matter of paper and ink, but may be your visitation to us. Talk with us, we pray, heart to heart, and make our joy in Christ complete. Amen. Do keep that uh, passage open, if you would. Well, we've welcomed Obadiah today, and we trust that he will indeed grow in grace, mercy, and peace, as in the letter that forms the reading you've just heard. But I want to begin at the other end of life. George Jarrett died on Monday. Perhaps for those who looked after him, he might have had his difficult moments, but I will remember him as a genuinely sweet-tempered old man. And I will be glad when I remember him to think of his faith. He'd had a full and interesting life, but his faith was delightfully simple. And it is a pleasure and a privilege to minister to such. But it is a sadness to visit some in later years and hear the common refrain, almost said as an offering to the vicar who's visiting. Oh, I do believe, and I've tried my best all my life. And it is, believe me, a very common refrain. And I could go over with them a lot of Christian doctrine, and they would nod along with me, but what they have picked up is the idea that in response to what God has done, the test God will apply is, have you done your best? Perhaps you know someone like that. Perhaps you are someone like that. And it takes us into the world of the second letter of John. Page 1229. Here, John describes himself as the elder. He was among the youngest of Jesus' disciples, but he's become the elder. These are the dying days now of the first century. The generation of the apostles is dying out. There are travelers out on the roads now, passing from house church to house church on their way, with teaching to offer to the churches. No longer first generation teaching now, but second and perhaps third generation. Some of those travelers are to be trusted, some are not. And John wants to stiffen the church's resistance to the falsehoods that are doing the rounds. In the, tr- in the introduction, we already find the themes of the letter. To the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also who know the truth, but be- because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. Truth comes uh, four times in three verses. But then in that uh, verse 3, there's a slight variation from the standard greeting. John adds a description of Jesus Christ, the Father's Son. And that's already a little clue to what the problem is going to be, to what's going wrong in the circle of churches that he's concerned for. I say churches, but the letter is written to a lady, isn't it? Well, apparently not. I had always thought it was. 
nearly 30 years of ministry, I've never studied this book and had always assumed it was a person. But every commentator tells me it was a way of writing to a church. Like ships, churches were she. And the language of chosen sister at the end of the letter uh, make everyone more convinced that John is writing from uh, a base at one church, the chosen sister, to a church in the same circuit, the elder, the chosen lady. So let's go on. The elder, John, has encountered some from the other church. Perhaps they came on a visit. And in verse 4, the emphasis is not, I found some of your children in the truth, but the rest were a bit dodgy, but rather, I'm glad to have found some of your church and to find that they are in the truth. Now, Jesus, of course, gave his followers in John's Gospel, um, chapter 13 and verse 34, what he described as a new commandment, love one another. But now, verse 5, John can treat it almost as a play on words so many years later. I'm not writing you a new commandment, he says, but the one we've known from the beginning when it was a new commandment, love one another. And then we get into that circle that may sound familiar from John's own gospel. Uh, Verse 6, love one another. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, verse 6, obey his commands. Uh, Okay, well, what does that look like? Uh, Walk in love. Okay, well, what does that mean? Uh, Follow his commands. And what does that mean? Walk in love. And it goes round and round. And so this emphasis uh, comes up again, but in a, a slightly different way. Truth and love. Commands and love. And we're still not going to fully understand until we press on further to see where things are going wrong. There's a connection between verse 6 and verse 7 that our translation doesn't have. That's no one's fault. Uh, English has fairly short uh, uh, sentences because it, it, it thinks in short forms. Greek goes on and on and on. Uh, and it would sound incredibly uh, long-winded to translate most long Greek sentences. But there's a because between verse 6 and verse 7. As you've heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love because many deceivers who don't acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. There are bad guys about. There are people around who've gone out into the churches traveling with a new message. And that new message is this. Jesus Christ did not come, quote, in the flesh. Now, what's that about? Well, we know from some letters written in the next century, early in the next century, that John was particularly concerned about a teaching that was doing the rounds, that Jesus was not God from the beginning, at his birth, because God was far too pure to be involved in the messy business of childbirth, and that he wasn't God at the crucifixion. God was far too pure to be involved in death. So, Jesus was God, but by God's Spirit, which came on him at his baptism and departed just before his crucifixion. So, he had God's Spirit upon him to to make him God in the in-between time. And that's why John, in verse 3, writes of Jesus as the Father's Son. Not just connected to the Spirit, but connected to the Father himself. And permanently 
as in a relationship of father and son. Well, here we, uh, here we sit. Uh, we've got all kinds of anxieties in our world. We are in austerity. The bankers are fiddling everything, we get told by the media. And you have to think there would be worse things to worry about on a pleasant Sunday when most of us are wondering how we can come to evening service and still see the football. (laughs) But John takes all this very seriously. Such people are the Antichrist, he says. If you follow them, you put in peril your final salvation, verse 8. Beware, because the way they're going to go about this is they're going to present it as a fuller, deeper teaching. Let's leave behind the basics that you had from the apostles. They were all right in their own day. They, they, they kind of did their best. But now, let, let's take you on. Let's run on, verse 9, to a, a sat, more subtle, intelligent understanding of what was going on. In the world of John, where all churches met in houses, to welcome such a teacher into the house was to welcome them into the church, to welcome their message. But anyone who welcomes him, says John, shares in his wicked work, verse 11. Now, isn't this exactly the kind of thing that gives Christians a bad name? Tearing into one another. Over the centuries, declaring that this... uh, group or that person is the Antichrist. Along with suffering and the problem of evil, the way some Christians treat or have treated each other is often quoted as a reason for not even considering the Christian faith. If you read John's Gospel, you'll remember all the loving stuff that there is inside it. And many Christians love it for all of that. But it also has fierce passages of darkness and the identifying of evil in others. So it's not surprising to find these same shades of black and white in a letter from the same John. It's not surprising, but is it reasonable? Well, when you get confronted by those arguments, whether they're suffering or the problem of evil, or indeed the way Christians treat each other, we all have to find our own answers. But just as an example, look at the arguments inside the Church of England at the time of the Wesleys. It's a scandal that the Church allowed Methodism to be established as a separate denomination. Absolutely nothing that really mattered was at stake. And yet, look at some of the Trinitarian churches of today, including ourselves, and consider our separation from the Mormons and from the Jehovah's Witnesses. And you'd have to say that's a right separation, far deeper than anything that separates us even from the Roman Catholic Church. Because that separation is around who Jesus is, just like in John's letter. And we need to follow through a little on this heresy. Not only if we feel ourselves particularly threatened uh, by other denominations and cults in our time. If Jesus was God... Only because the Spirit was active between baptism and crucifixion, then God really is too pure to be involved in the mess of childbirth. So to be human is to start adrift from what is good. It puts a question mark over the creation of human being as being in God's image. 
and says that whatever redemption means, it doesn't apply to the whole of life. If Jesus was God only because the Spirit was active between baptism and crucifixion, it means that God was finally not loving enough to go through even death for us. It means that Jesus' sacrifice of himself was purely human, and that to abuse the words of St. Paul, God was not in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It can still mean that Jesus was pleased with, uh, that God was pleased with Jesus' sacrifice, but it means that that's not enough. And then finally, if Jesus was God only because the Spirit sort of rested on him, rather than being God in his own flesh, it means that only the Spirit really matters. What we do with our bodies, our daily business of work, family, study, leisure, they lie outside the realm of the spiritual, which becomes the cultivation of a religious life. I wonder if you can feel how this is beginning to steer a little more closely to something recognizable in our own time. If the sacrifice of Jesus is not enough, what are you going to have to do about it? Well, you have to keep God happy somehow, so you're going to try to live by his law. It's no coincidence that in our own day, the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, in their different ways, have extremely strict codes of behavior that you must live by. This isn't a sermon about the Mormons and the JWs. It's a sermon about all those who say, I believe and I've tried my best. All those who in those words are telling me that what they've lived by is a code. They've lived by a code rather than living for God in Christ. If Jesus Christ is not God come in the flesh, then his sacrifice needs supplementing. Where are we going to find any supplement except by doing it ourselves? And human life, even by God's own goodness, then becomes an attempt to please our God, to, to make him happier with us than he might otherwise have been. Why on earth would these travelers that, this has to be the question that puzzles us down the generations because there are always these travelers. Every generation has this one, that Jesus is not enough. Why would they take the original message from Jesus and pervert it to make it a story of going back to law again? Why does it happen in whole movements in our own time? Because it is so hard to believe in verse 3. Grace mercy, peace from God. It is so built into our human spirits by our sinfulness that it is for us to make peace with God by something we strive for. Not something that comes from God, something that comes out of pure grace without our achieving it. Only grace the discovery of how much God has done for us while we were still sinners, as Paul puts it, will lead to a genuine love for one another. Only the mercy of God poured out on the dry ground of my heart is the utterly reliable truth deeply established beyond my life and all its striving. And if we can get that, 
if we can believe that it begins with grace, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that God has done all that is necessary, that human life is redeemed from birth to death and beyond, if we can grasp that, in fact, not if we can, but if we will, since it's a matter of the will, not a matter of the capacity, if we will grasp it, then we can follow the command of love, not as a slavish obedience of some way of impressing God, not to make God pleased with us, which is a a desperate way to go, but because we know he is pleased with us, which is about glory and what he has done. What more could we pray for Obadiah this morning than that he might grow in grace? May he never, ever fall into the trap of believing that his hard work, and we pray he will work hard, is what leads God to be pleased with him. George Jarrett died with a final humility, knowing that he was loved in grace by God and that Jesus' sacrifice is enough. And as we pray for the Huddlestons on their departure, we can rejoice that the people of the church to which Mark goes, whatever its new place and name will be, will have in their pulpit, if it has one, I probably suspect it won't, uh, one who absolutely knows the grace of God as the heart of the message, because Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And they will have a family for whom grace is at the heart of their life together, as many have uh, had cause to thank God. We're saying goodbye today, too, to Beth and Malcolm Malone, who've been with us for a couple of years as they move to Glastonbury. Now there's a territory (laughs) where a few odd things are going on. Please, God, at the heart of your life, let there be Jesus Christ come in the flesh. And here, too, what more could we pray for our city on Wednesday? I cannot tell you how much I don't care about the Olympic torch relay. (laughs) It seems to me to be the purest marketing hype, and I am astonished at the crowds that turn out for it, as though in some sense it matters. But I will be in Chapelfield on Wednesday because to them it does matter. It's entered the new saints' calendar. I want to be with a crowd of people, most of whom will be utterly clueless of Jesus Christ come in the flesh for them. I want to breathe in the atmosphere of a crowd that is trying to find hope in a little flame. I want to be reignited in a passion that the blazing light of Christ will put to shame every competing and feeble flame. And I can do all that and be done at 7.30 and still be here for prayer focus. The world of John seems far away and long ago. Its heresies seem far away and long ago. But I assure you that they breathe and live today in everyone who says to me, I tried to do my best. But if you want a verb for this Olympic week, try this one, dare. Don't be satisfied with little gods. Don't be satisfied with rules and regulations. Be satisfied only with grace and mercy and peace. Dare to believe. Dare to believe that he became holy as we are so that we might become as he is. As he is now 
there is a man in the flesh in heaven at the right hand of the Father, so that you can be there too. Dare to believe that Jesus is God come in the flesh. Dare to believe that Jesus is enough. Let's pray. Lord, in Norwich, in Wokingham, in Glastonbury, and in every place our lives will touch this week, that message that John the Elder knew is the message for our times as much as for his, that Jesus is fully the answer to the problems we know of human being. we pray that we may so fully believe it for ourselves in your grace and mercy and peace, that we may have an answer to all the many ways in which people seek to go back to other ways, to living by codes and rules and regulations and laws. May we reintroduce into the world around us, a note of gladness and joy because your grace has met us. In Jesus' name, amen.